So this morning I'm continuing to go through the Old Testament book of Jonah. It's a masterfully told story, great deal of relevance to our lives today. Uh, I'll take you back on what you've missed if you haven't been a part of it. Just a recap, um, chapters 1 and 2, God calls Jonah to go and be a prophet to Nineveh, this city, uh, this violent city that was an enemy of Israel. And Jonah, instead of obeying and going, decides to go in the opposite direction because he has no intention of going. We're going to find out later why he has no intention of going. We'll find that out next week. But all we know now is that he's got no intention of going, and he tries to hightail it in the opposite direction. But God will not let him go and will not let him get away. And even though he boards a ship bound for not Nineveh, God brings a storm, a storm of his discipline to try to keep him from going in that direction. And the sailors cry out to their gods, and none of the gods are answering. And they realize that it's Jonah's God who has brought this storm. And so Jonah says, throw me into the sea. It's my fault. Throw, they throw him into the sea, but God provides a great fish to swallow Jonah. And in the belly of that great fish, he prays to the Lord. And he acknowledges his idolatry and his sin. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. There's a great line from two weeks ago. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a sacrifice of thanksgiving, will make good to you what I promised I'll make new. Salvation comes from the Lord. And he decides, you know what? All right, I'm, I'm going to obey the Lord. And so God causes the fish to spit him out onto the shores of Nineveh. And that's where we pick up the story here in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. So I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. This is God's word. So Jonah is out of the belly. He's on the shores of Nineveh. and God speaks to Jonah again, the same message, and says, Go, proclaim the message that I give you to Nineveh. And this time Jonah goes, and it's a message of judgment here. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. But incredibly, Nineveh hears and they repent. They believe the message. They put on sackcloth, which is a common expression of humility, taking off your regular clothes and putting on just plain sackcloth. They declare a fast, so much so that even the animals are required to fast. And even the king says, gets off his throne, sits down in the dust, And God responds to their actions by having compassion on them and not bringing about the promised destruction. Now, this passage, as I was preparing, it brought to mind a passage I want to share to you from 1 Corinthians that Paul says. I want to just read this to you. Uh, Unless I don't have it up there. I'll read it to you. It's not there. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Paul writes, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence, 
for superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Let me read that one more time and think of that in the context of Jonah. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I love that. He says, my message, my preaching was not with wise and persuasive words. And you see Jonah here coming to this great city of Nineveh. And, you know, if he came with wise and persuasive words, it would not have done a thing. But he came in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And the simple message of judgment to come was enough by the power of God to propel the Ninevites to repentance and faith. And I stand up here, you know, in the vein of Jonah, having to come and deliver a message that it's tempting to just trust in wise and persuasive words, to trust that if I just craft a wise and persuasive message, that will be enough. But it's a lie. When you read this, you see it's not about wise and persuasive words, that even as Jonah may have come before the great city of Nineveh with fear and trembling, that I could come before you with fear and trembling. But as long as I'm preaching with a dependence upon the power of God and the spirit of God and not with wise and persuasive words, then it'll be enough. So why don't we pray? Why don't we pray together that my preaching to you would not be something that's depending on wise and persuasive words, but that it would be filled with the Spirit's power. Lord, I do pray that this message would go forth with the power of the Holy Spirit, that it would not be about the words that are chosen, the cleverness, the persuasiveness, but instead it'd be about a demonstration of the Spirit's power, that you would apply this message to the hearts of those who need to hear it, that they would respond to you in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jonah 3 is really a a pretty simple story, and I want to just summarize it in four points here. The first is this, that we are not naturally good, but we are rebels against the holy God. We're not naturally good, but we are rebels against the holy God. In the story of Jonah, no one's really good on their own. The sailors are crying out to the false gods. The Ninevites are, uh, have destruction coming to them for their violence and wickedness. And Jonah himself is the worst of all of them. Even though he's a man of God, he's running as far as he can from God. There's no one good, not one of them. All of them are in need of something to turn them to faith in God. And it's the reality for all of us that we're not naturally good people. We're rebels against the holy God. A couple days ago, I was on Facebook, and I read this post on a friend's Facebook page. It said this, being yourself is never the wrong thing to do. And there was a lot of, of course, likes and, you know, all of that. It's a very common expression, of course, uh, in this age of authenticity. The snarky part of me wanted to put this in the comments. <laughs> right? I've resisted the urge. But this kind of, it's kind of what I call, like, the Hitler test, right? It's like, all right. If this would be true for Hitler, then let's celebrate it. If it's not true for him, then it's not, you know, necessarily a true thing. Maybe, just maybe, there's times when being yourself is not, not the right thing to do. Maybe there's, it's a little more complicated than just, hey, just be true to yourself. Follow your own heart. 
Could it be that sometimes, sometimes, it's not about being true to yourself and just doing, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. That maybe, just maybe, our hearts are not naturally pure and perfect. And if we just followed them, then we'd wind up in a blissful place individually and a society, right? But maybe, just maybe, we're not quite as pure and good as we think we are. One podcast that I've listened to uh, is called The Happiness Lab, based out of Yale, Connecticut. And uh, it's the premise, it's about the science of happiness. And one of the premises of this podcast that she says in the intro of her podcast is that our minds lie to us all the time. That our minds are telling us things that they, we think will make us happy, but in reality, our minds are lying to us. And she's not coming from the perspective of the Bible. She's coming from the perspective of science, but revealing many things that the Bible says about happiness not being found in what we think it will be found in. You know, that winning the lottery is not necessarily going to make us as happy as we think. Or just going home and just vegging out and staring at screens is not going to make us as happy as actually being around people. Following your heart, being true to yourself is not always such a straightforward path to happiness as you think. The Bible puts it this way, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Completely a contrary line to what most of us believe from our culture today, which is just follow your heart, be true to yourself, you do you, and things will be great for you and great for our culture and great for society. If everyone would just, could be free to just be themselves, we'd be in a better place. But the Bible dares to say differently. God dares to say, the heart is deceitful above all things, that we're not naturally good, that we're rebels against the holy God, that even though we're all created in God's image, we're all capable of good things, we're all fallen into sin. We're all broken. We're all twisted. Every part of us is corrupted in some way. Romans 3, Paul puts it this way, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, Gentiles are the non-Jewish people, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. All, that sums up everyone there. And Romans 3.23 says very similarly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Jonah, we see what is true in the Bible and throughout the world, that none of us are naturally good. We're much more complicated than that. That even though we've been created in God's image, we are all rebels against the holy God. We're all broken. We're all fallen. If we all just followed our heart, our society would be in a disastrous place. The second thing we learn is this, that not only are we rebels against the holy God, but as a result, we're all headed towards judgment and destruction. We have Nineveh here, headed towards destruction, God sends Jonah to plead with them, to warn them. The direction they're going is not good. And every time God raised up a prophet, that was the message, really. It was, the way you are headed is not good. It's leading to destruction. Turn around. Turn back to God. I mean, how would you feel? When you look around our country, you know, all the polls say that the country is getting less and less religious, right? Less and less Christian. Less and less people. Fewer people going to church. Would you say that as we turn from God, turn towards just following our own selves, are things getting better? Maybe in some small ways, you might say there's some improvements, but I'd say, I'd argue, as you look around, things seem to be getting worse as we turn from God on the throne to putting ourselves on the throne. That there's a great increase in anxiety and depression 
polarization between people, hatred, suspicion of each other, deaths of despair, declining birth rates even. All around it does seem, as we kind of say, you know what, God, we don't need you. We can do this ourselves. Thank you very much. For the most part, things seem to be getting worse. And it's not just about this life, but that our predicament is worse than just individual angst and cultural decay, that death is coming for everyone. That death is coming for everyone. And if the Bible's correct, and if Jesus is correct in what he proclaimed, then we're all going to stand one day before the God who created us to give an account for our lives. As it says in Hebrews 9, 27 to 28, just, oh, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We're all destined to die once and then face judgment, stand before a holy God. And as it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, what we deserve for turning from God for our rebellion is death, eternal separation from God, that we're all under God's wrath. It says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So this is not good news. These are not easy verses to hear. Some of you may recoil against the idea of of a God of wrath or a judgment or any of this. It's understandable. It's not a pleasant thought. But I would challenge you to consider this. Consider the truth. Consider this reality. That we are not all good. That even in this world we have seen as we all turn to go our own way, it doesn't lead to harmony and justice for all. It leads to greater polarization and hatred and death and all of that as we turn from God to our own way. And on that day when we all stand before him and we have to give an account to him, if we have just gone our own way, then God will give us over to our own way forever. Judgment and destruction. But now start some of the good news. Third point. God wants everyone to be saved from destruction. God didn't want the sailors to die or Ninevites or even Jonah, that he would bring the storm and he would bring his message to call people to repentance, to call people to stop going their own way, to turn, to embrace his grace and his goodness and his love. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, Paul writes, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants everyone to be saved from destruction, to come to a knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This was in response to those who said, where is this coming of the Lord that he promised? He says, well, he's being patient. He's giving you an opportunity to turn, to turn to him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Wants all to be saved. But how can a God, a holy God, a God of justice, forgive a rebellious people? If God wants all to be saved, yet all have sinned and gone their own way, then what? We're in this dilemma here. No one's going to turn to God. No one's going to turn back to him. No one's seeking him. But God's desire is that all would be saved. So what is he to do? To get our attention. To turn us back. Of course, the Bible tells us what he did. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Why don't you just take a minute, read that carefully to yourself. Faced with this dilemma, this quandary of a rebellious people going their own way and a holy God who loves them and wants everyone to be saved. And no one seeks for God. No one turns to God on their own. What is a holy God to do? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took on human form, lived the perfect life that we could not live without sin, offered himself as a sacrificial offering in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, taking our sins upon himself, offering us his perfection, a right relationship with the Father, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. That was God's answer for how to reconcile a rebellious people to himself, to send his son to die for us. And so the fourth point is this, that repentance and faith is how we are saved. Repentance and faith. Look at what happened to the king in Jonah 3. It says, When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. It's a great picture of repentance. What does he do? He gets off the throne. He gets off the throne. As if he's giving the rightful place to God, that God is king of kings, God is Lord of lords, and he humbles himself before the true king in repentance. Repentance is changing your mind, changing your heart, changing your behavior, turning from sin and self-centeredness to God, getting off the throne of your life where you are the king, you are the Lord, you will do whatever it is you want to do, and everyone has to bow down to you and putting him where he belongs on the throne, allowing him to be God. Let me just show you how common this call is to repentance and faith. I want to share five passages from the New Testament where the call is to repent and believe. Mark 1, 14 to 15, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Luke 5, 30 to 32, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 24, 46 to 47, Jesus told his disciples, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Acts 2 at Pentecost, Peter says this, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made him that made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 20, 20 to 21, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So whatever you think of the whole idea of, of, of God of judgment or of wrath or of repentance, whatever you personally think, I need you to at least understand that this is the consistent message of the Bible, the consistent message of Jesus and the disciples, that we are not going towards heaven on our own. We are not just good people on our way to heaven just the way we are, that we all need to repent, turn from our sin, get off the throne, put God on the throne as Lord. Turn from sin. Turn from self-centeredness. Repent and believe. Put our faith in Jesus, that he died for our sins, that the way to be right with God is to put our faith and trust in him. The message is not being yourself is never the wrong thing to do. The message is not just that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The message is not just a health and wealth prosperity message. The message includes the word repentance, turning from sin and self-centeredness to faith in Jesus. A message that tells everyone to just follow their own hearts and live however they please sounds on the surface like it's a great message, but in reality, it just leads to chaos as everyone just goes their own direction and does what they think is best to them. Turn from sin and self-centeredness. Get off the throne this morning. Put Jesus on the throne. This is the great promise from 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So first and foremost, if this message is new to you, if you have never heard a message like this, then I encourage you this morning to repent and believe in Jesus, to get off the throne where you are Lord and you just do whatever it is you please because that is a way that is heading towards judgment and destruction and enthrone Jesus as Lord. Confess to him your sin. Confess your self-centeredness and there is grace, there is forgiveness, there is goodness, there is love, there is salvation for you. Repent and believe this morning. And if you do believe this message, take to heart that this is the message we're called to proclaim. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and faith. It's not just as much as we want to just make it a message of like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that it's not that easy. It's not that simple. It does require a turning, getting off of the throne. Let me again just share this passage that was not up there earlier. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. It's an encouragement. I find that to be encouraging for those of us who are trembling when we have to share anything about our faith. He says, Paul, he said, I was the same way. I came in fear and trembling. 
but I came in prayer. I came in prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that it was not going to be about my delivery and my message. It was going to be about the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to save people. And the reality is, if you tell people a message of repentance and faith, what's going to happen? Some people will receive it, and some people will reject you and think you're cruel, think you're mean, think you're progressive, whatever the word might be. As it says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16, Paul says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. Some will hear a message of repentance and faith in Jesus and think it's the most beautiful thing they've ever heard and they will receive it and come to faith in Jesus and and experience the goodness of God. And some will think you stink, in other words. Some will think it's the fragrance of death, the smell of death, that they will think the message you are proclaiming is evil, that it's a terrible thing to say, to say to anyone that they need to not just follow their heart and do whatever it is they want, but in some way they need to get off the throne and humble themselves and put God on the throne, that that is where life to the fullest is found, not in just following your own desires. Let's close with this prayer, which is a prayer for all of us. Ephesians 6. Let me, at first, I will summarize this. Again, summarizing Jonah 3 here and what we learn. We're not naturally good. We're rebels against the holy God. We're all headed towards judgment and destruction. But God wants everyone to be saved from destruction. And that is why he sent his son, Jesus. And that the way to be saved is repentance, to get off the throne, to turn from our sin and self-centeredness, to put him on the throne and put our faith in Jesus. And let me close with this prayer. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Lord, this is our prayer this morning. Those of us who know you, who believe in you, who've been entrusted with this message, this gospel, this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins, we ask that you would help us to declare it fearlessly, that you would give us the words to speak so that we could fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, that you would anoint our message with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would see friends, family, neighbors, colleagues come to faith in you, experience and know your goodness and your love, be saved from destruction, be saved from judgment, We cannot do this on our own. We rely this morning on the power of your Holy Spirit to anoint our message, to anoint our words, Lord, to bring spiritual power to the words we speak. We thank you for the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins to make a way for us to be right with God, to have eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.